A few years ago, there was a very popular book entitled Dress for Success. Never read that book. But the premise was this. If you focus in on your attire, it will influence your life. And many people believe that as you pay attention to every aspect of your appearance, it will pay dividends. It will bring about change. Well, I don't know about that. But I want you to think tonight, or this morning, about your kingdom attire. When you're in the kingdom, how are you going to be presenting yourself? Peter mentions something. He mentions a crown of glory. And he says that crown of glory, that glory doesn't diminish. It's eternal. So are you going to be having that crown of glory? What is it that Messiah is going to say to you when you stand before his judgment seat? See, that thought was important to Peter. Peter writes his final chapter with an objective, and that is to be a man of influence, not a man of prestige, not a man of notoriety, but one who influences others for kingdom things. And whether you're a man or a woman, we should have as our utmost desire to be an influencer, influencing others to submit to the good purposes of our Lord and Savior. Take out your Bible and look with me to that last chapter, 1 Peter in chapter 5. Now, as I said, he speaks initially to the elders, those overseers of congregations. And he wants them to lead properly. He calls them pastors or shepherds. And one of the most important jobs of a shepherd is not just to defend the sheep, but to feed them properly. And that means he has to lead them in the right places. And that's what the Word of God and only the Word of God does. You say, what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is going to move in your life proportional to your knowledge of truth. You will not be able to discern his influence, his leadership, his anointing, if you're ignorant of his word. So Peter says, look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. The elders among you, and he's speaking, remember how we began, not just to one congregation, but to those Jewish believers in the diaspora, in that region of Asia Minor. And he's speaking to numerous congregations. This letter, this epistle is going to be circulated and read by many. So he says, to the leaders, the elders among you. And he uses a very strong word. I exhort, 
It's a word of encouragement, but it's also a word of instruction. It is not a word simply, I want you to feel excited, enthused. It's a word of instruction. It has an objective, a purpose behind it. And then he identifies himself. That he too is a fellow elder, and hear this, and a witness of the sufferings of Messiah. Now I think it's significant that he did not say a witness to the miracles of Messiah. He saw them all. But what made the greatest impression upon Peter was the suffering that Yeshua went through. That influenced his life. Now, biblically, we see something. We see that there's a relationship between suffering and love. That love that causes one uniquely to be willing to lay down his life, her life, for another. That love causes us to persevere, endure, and suffer. Throughout each of these chapters, the suffering of Messiah, the suffering of the followers of Messiah is spoken of. So he begins once more that he's a fellow elder, a leader, but he emphasizes a witness of the sufferings of Messiah and notice the relationship. He speaks about Messiah's suffering, but then he says, and a partner, a partner of the coming revelation, I love this, of glory. Now, biblically, there's a relationship between the presence of God and the glory of God. When he speaks about the revealing the manifestation of God's glory, he's talking about the presence of Messiah, his return. There's been several references to just that. When Messiah returns, and there's a relationship between the return of Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom. When you read carefully these apostles' writings, you find that they're always kingdom focused. They learned that from Messiah, all of his parables, why he came. Remember his first message. He says, repent, that involves change, a godly change, a change that goes against how we think, what we want, what we desire. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That message of kingdom invitation is at hand. We need to change. And Peter wants to influence these leaders because if they change, the people will follow. Look at verse 2. So that this change comes about, so that there is a godly influence, he tells these elders, you feed the ones among you, and he specifies the flock of God. Now, I think it's very important for leaders to realize 
that who they're dealing with is God's flock. It's utmost in our minds that we are representatives of God dealing with those who belong not to us, but to them, to him. When we understand that, we learn something. As we see Messiah taught, as you did to the least of my brethren, the least you've done unto me. That's what Peter is referring to here. That these individuals are the flock of God and feed them. And obviously, he's not speaking here about physical food, but the word of God. Truth. And he says, overseeing. That word has a degree of responsibility. That we are responsible for those that are part of God's flock that he entrusts, entrusts to us. And he says, do so not out of compulsion, not because you have to. See, if we're walking in truth, if we're anointed by the Spirit, we never say, what do I have to do? There's a change that's happened to us where we, by the work of the Spirit of God within us, we grow, we mature, and that maturity is, is manifested by agreeing with God. We always could say no to the enemy, yes to God. And the more you mature, the more you grow in the faith, the easier that yes is. So he says here, we don't do so because we have to. Because what will people say if we don't? He says that we do so not out of compulsion, but willingly. Now, that means there's an agreement. Our will and God's will, as we mature, it becomes closer and closer until it's the same. So we don't have to ask ourselves, why do I need to do this? What's in it for me? That's that Esau spirit. Esau, when he looked at his call, he wasn't interested. He says, what is this birthright to me? How is it for me? That is not a servant. Messiah never did anything for himself. He did it out of obedience to the one who sent him and out of love for those that God called him to love. So we are called to do this willingly. And then he says something else. Not out of an ambition for gain. See, what we find spiritually is the more you grow spiritually, the less your wants are. The less interested you become in the things of this world. Because as you grow spiritually, you are going to have God's perspective. And you're going to see all these things that the world loves. The world seeks out. We're going to recognize them as sources, as targets of God's destruction. Don't labor for what God's going to destroy. 
serve for what God is going to purify, refine, that it'll have an eternal aspect to it. So he says, don't do so out of compulsion, but do so willingly in agreement with God, not for some ambition of gain, but rather do so. And this is the word best translated eagerly. Those who know God, who understand his call, his purpose for what he wants to do, we eagerly want to be a part of that. There is a desire, the same desire that Isaiah had. When God says, who can we send? Who will go for me? Isaiah says, here am I. That same message that Abraham and the other patriarchs said, that Hebrew phrase, Hineni, behold, here am I. We want to serve God. God never chooses someone out of compulsion. You say, what about Moses? Wasn't that Moses didn't want to serve God. He felt so inadequate. And that's why God says all of his objectives. When Moses says, I'm not good at this, God says, I'll take care of that. Then finally he says, God, just send someone else. Moses, he felt so inadequate. And what that was was a wrong understanding of humility. God changed that. Now Moses was always humble, but he understood that that humility was why God chose him. And we're going to see that humility is mentioned several times in this passage. Look at verse 3. This is kind of the opposite. He uses the term here, lording over. Having control. Now, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. That spirit is moving bolder all over the world today. Those who belong to the world love to control. But he says, verse 3, he says, but not as lording over the congregations, but rather, he says, be examples of the flock. Meaning, live in a way that the flock will imitate the shepherd. Do so in a way that others understand that this is right before God. Leading others to join with you. Now, one of the objectives that I have, I love when Paul says, you know, imitate me. He's imitating Messiah. It is growth and maturity to be able to say, it's not pride, but when he says, imitate me, he's speaking about what a true servant becomes. We become like our Savior. First, we understand his salvation, and as we deepen our understanding of our Savior, we recognize him as Lord. 
So he says here, don't lord over them, controlling them, but rather be an example of the flock. Verse 4. And after the manifestation of that chief shepherd. Now, this is speaking about his return and him setting things in order. And what's the first thing that he's doing? Well, the book of Revelation answers this. When Messiah says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. Now, it's that same word, if you look in the middle of verse 4, it's that same Greek word where we get the English word, we talked about Monday or Friday night, commission. He recognizes what we have done and our rewards are based upon performance. Salvation, not based on performance. Rewards, based on our performance. He says, after the manifestation of our chief shepherd, you will receive, here's where we began, that crown of unfading, that glory which doesn't diminish, a crown of glory. How are you going to feel at that time? Are you going to have confidence and assurance that that crown is going to be placed upon your head? And then he switches to the young people. We have a few young people here. He says, likewise, young ones, submit to the elders. And all submit to one another. Now, submission to authority is foundational in God's house. If we don't recognize godly authority, nothing's going to be done. It's not going to be a congregation that walks in the anointing. So he says, you young men, it's inclusive, young women as well. Humble yourselves. Submitting, and then he says, gird yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud. Better write that down. God opposes the proud. If you're prideful, God's not going to use you. If you are focused upon your objectives, you're not a servant of God. So he says, gird yourselves with humility. Girding, we talked about that as well on Friday night. That is a posture for service. Messiah girded himself to wash the feet of the disciples, showing an example of that humility. So he tells us, gird yourself with humanity, hum humility, because God resists. He's anti, that's that word, he's anti-pride. But the humble 
he will give grace. Now, here again, we're not talking about grace, which does save. This is not the grace that he's speaking about. We've already received that. He's talking about a grace that moves us in God's will and to the fulfillment of the purposes of God. So he says to such people, humble yourself, being a posture of service. God will give you grace. And then he says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now why? Well, that mighty hand, when I'm humble, when you're humble, God places, and it's a transfer of his might. When we're humble, God places upon us power and also that word power, exousia, also relates to authority. God will never give authority to those who are not humble. Now, people take authority, but it's not God's authority. He only gives it to the humble. He says, therefore, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in order that you, those is those who are humble, that you, he will exalt in season. The Bible speaks a great deal about seasons. And there are times when God is saying, it is your season to be exalted. Now, that term exalted also relates to a revealing. God using, moving someone, revealing them for a purpose. A purpose, a position of authority in order to do something. What Peter is emphasizing in this passage is that he's saying to people, you need to position yourself, better yet, you need to prepare yourself to be positioned by God in order that you can accomplish his purposes. Now, all of this is getting ourselves ready for service. Look at verse 7. Now, at times we all struggle with anxiety. We feel the pressure, the stress of this world. How do we step away from that? Now, pills are not the answer. Just discussing it, it may help in the short term. But it's not going to bring a real solution to that problem. Sometimes stress and anxiety, it is legitimate. But there is a solution. He says here, for those who are anxiously wanting to serve God, who come before him humbly, who have his hand of power upon them. He says, and all your anxiety, it's a word of pressure, stress, cast upon him. Why? This is what we need to realize. Notice how it ends. Because he cares for you. When people are feeling dejected, discouraged, full of the pressures, anxieties of this world, the solution is 
God, you care for me. And I'm going to receive that care. And I'm going to serve you. When we are serving God and experiencing his provision, his presence in our life, all these things that are placed upon us by the enemy, these feelings of stress, anxiety, they're removed. See, we need to realize that obedience is the weapon against stress and anxiety. When we walk in obedience, the enemy stands aside. He might try to scare us, cause us to be fearful, but when we persevere in God's way, all those things are going to fade away. So he promises us, some of your stress, no, all of your anxiety, having cast upon him, because he cares for you. Now he's going to be speaking about, now finally, there's another process. He moved from, I have a call. I need to be prepared for that call. I need to be anointed with his mighty hand. God is going to remove all this selfishness, all my self-concern. So I can see things differently. I can see things properly. And that's why he says, look at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded. Now, this term sober is a word of clarity. See, most of the time when we are living in the world, listening to the world, following the world, we can't see things spiritually with clarity. It's all a fog. We are in a spiritual darkness that really describes the world that we're in. That's why as we sung, we've got to step into the light. So he says, you be sober-minded. And it's only when we have that clarity that the word of God, the purpose of God gives to us. Then and only then, we can do this next thing. It says, and you watch out. Now, in some Bibles, that same word, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's frequently translated, take heed. It's a word of warning. God is warning us to be watching. Watching for what? Where more often than not, that word is used within a last day's context. So we, as we approach the last days, we need to be watching. We need discernment to know what we should be expecting. The problem with Israel, the problem with the disciples, they weren't watching for the prophetic signs that they should have been watching for in regard to Messiah's first coming. And because they would not watch, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, watch and pray. What are those two things in common? Watch means look out because prayer is a source of revelation. Now, here's the problem. Most of us only pray halfway. What do I mean by that? In Hebrew, the word for prayer 
is always, that verb for doing prayer is always, always in a unique construction. You don't find the word prayer in any other grammatical condition but this. And it's that reflexive stem. See, this means there's something that goes forth and something that comes back. The problem is this. We only send the words to him. We really don't wait for the response. Prayer is speaking and then listening to God. We say everything. Our requests, our supplications, our desires, our problems. We say amen. God hears that as an opportunity, the time for him to respond. And we walk away. We are not praying biblically. So it says here, you need a clarity of your mind. You need to see things correctly so that you can watch for what God's up to. We get insight. Just look at Israel's history. They get insight from what God brings about. Where he is moving. What he is doing. So he says, watch. The disciples weren't watching. Although Messiah was born prophetically in the right place. He came at the right time before the destruction of the temple. They should have been looking. They should have had expectation. They did not. And therefore, because they did not have a biblical expectation of the timing nor the work of Messiah, that suffering servant, they were totally unprepared and they scattered. What about when Messiah returns? Are the body of believers today truly watching and knowing what to look for? So he says, you watch because of your opponent. Now, I didn't really look at a lot of translations for that word, but probably it's opponent. Maybe some Bibles translate it enemy. But it's really not important what it is in English or Spanish or any other language, right? What is it in the original? And it's the word anti, and in this use, it means against. And then it's the word dikos, which is righteous. Our opponent, our enemy is just that. He's against righteousness. He hates righteousness. Why? He's full of pride. He knows that righteousness manifests what? The glory of God. He hates the glory of God. Why? It's all about him. That's his objective. He says, I see the throne of God. I want my throne over him. So Satan. Now here, doesn't use the word Satan thereafter. When it speaks about our opponent, this one who is against righteousness, how is he called? The devil. Now, when you hear devil, what comes into your mind? When you look at the biblical word, it's the word in Greek 
that we get the English term diabolical. Mean someone that cheats with intelligence. He's got a plan. He's got a scheme. And it's a pretty good one. And it's better than you and I can figure out for ourselves. Left to ourselves, we will always be victimized by the devil. Always. Your intelligence is pale in comparison to his. He is truly the diabolical one. And the only way that we are going to find victory is if we're watching, we have that clarity of spiritual truth that guides us. He is diabolical. He is a deceitful one. And notice what else. He goes around like a lion. He is a counterfeit. He wants to be thought of as the lion of Judah, but he's not. As a lion roaring, going about, seeking. Now, I believe this is scripture. It tells me that the enemy and those demons and unclean spirits, they are in perfect submissiveness to him. He goes, they go, about seeking whom, and the word here is literally, most Bibles devour, but it's literally the word to drink down. What's important here is this term, down. He wants to take you down. He wants to consume you. He wants to use you for his purposes, his plans, his objectives. And he's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. He's got patience. He knows the timing. And he has intensity. He has a fervency. We have one thing. God. A covenantal relationship with God. And through that covenant, that new covenant, we have an anointing, and it's only through that anointing, that provision, that we can stand against this enemy. Look at verse, verse 9. What are we called to do? It says, to him you resist. And then it speaks about who the subject is of the sentence. It begins by, you, you resist. But we have to say, who is the you in this passage? And he speaks about those who are firm. Those who are solid. Solid and firm in what? Just keep reading. Those who are firm ones in faith. Now, faith, that word in the Old Testament is inherently tied to the word truth. Faith and truth go together. So if we're going to be firm in the faith, we're going to be committed to the truth of God. Knowing that the sufferings of this world over and over, Peter tells us, 
There's a battle, and you are going to suffer. Now, my father worked in law enforcement. He was at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and he took a course on how to disarm a criminal with a knife. And the instructor says, here's lesson one. You're going to get cut. No matter how good, you are going to be cut. If you can't handle that, then you're going to be killed. Success involves suffering. That was true in that simple example, and it's true in spiritual warfare. No one comes out perfectly intact. Messiah did battle. He was crucified. You do spiritual battle, you're going to suffer. If you're not willing to suffer for your faith, then you don't have a biblical faith. You don't have the true faith. So he says, just simply here, look at the context. We have that opponent. He's diabolical. He's going around like a roaring lion, intimidating. He's got power. And he says, you resist him. Be firm ones in the faith, knowing that the same suffering in this world that the brethren will complete. Now, the rabbis talk about something, mitzvot. And they say that there is a certain number of mitzvot, meaning good deeds in this context. That God has a certain number of good deeds, and when they're done, then the kingdom will come, Messiah will be revealed. Now, of course, there's no biblical basis for that. That is surely a thought that comes and derives not from heaven, but from man. But we see something that does come from the scripture. And God says that there is a degree that needs to be accomplished of suffering. Just realize, certain things require people to go through a process that involves discomfort, pain, suffering. And when we talk about the kingdom of God and what comes into my mind is in the book of Revelation, when those in heaven look down upon those of us perhaps that are still alive and going through that time of persecution. And you remember what they say. How long, O Lord, until your vengeance comes. And God says, stand down. Be quiet. Until the full number of your fellow servants. This is what Peter's speaking about. There is a requirement. It's just a spiritual law. That serving God involves suffering. Who's the best example of that? Messiah. Verse 10. There's that suffering 
But look at how verse 10 begins. In the Greek, the first word is actually the second word in the text, but it's always translated first, the word but. There's that full number of suffering, but the God of all grace. Hear that? All grace. What he's saying is this. I have all the grace that's necessary when my children are suffering. And as we suffer, God is ministering grace in our life. And through that grace, we will stand firm. We will have that testimony that is pleasing to God. He says, the one who has called us he says, into his eternal glory. Wow. You and I have been called. And it's already been decided if you have accept, accepted the gospel. That you have an invitation that you're going to experience. God's eternal glory. Now, notice the context, the order. Yes, there's suffering. But it's limited. There's a certain number of suffering, and God says, that's all. I think that's true for each individual. After saying, you're going to suffer, he says, but I'm the God of grace. And we see a relationship between this purpose of God's grace, which leads us to where? Glory. What's glory? Being in the presence of God. That's what the kingdom is. Now, when people aren't interested in the kingdom, they're not interested in being with God. If someone never talks about the kingdom, and one aspect of the kingdom is the end times, this transition from this age to the kingdom of God. If we're interested in the kingdom, we're going to want to know the events that transpires that brings about that kingdom establishment. So he says in verse 10, but the God of all grace, the one who has called us into his eternal glory, but there's a condition, only for those who are what? In Messiah Yeshua. No other way. No other means. Then he uses a word that he's used three times. This word for few or little. Now, if you do a good word study and you look at the lexicon, this is a word of insignificance. Didn't say the word is insignificant, but it speaks about that which is insignificant especially in comparison so this is a little but if it's a little what remains a lot it's simply a portion a small percent and he wants us to have the right understanding he says there's a little suffering but this one 
He's going to use that in order to make you, don't know how your Bible translates it, but it's a word for being complete. Bringing us to the full measure of what God wants you and wants me to be. This pain, this suffering is necessary. When you reject it, run from it, what you're saying is, I don't want to become whom Messiah has died for me to become. Notice the context, end of verse 10, where he says, yes, there's that little suffering, but it's for your completion that you might be planted. It's a word for being rooted or established, being made strong, and being founded. Meaning this, place finally in that right location. Ultimately, that right location is the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Look at verse 11. This is a kingdom expression. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When we speak and see in full measure the glory and the power of God, that's a kingdom event. Verse 12. Peter briefly wraps up this first epistle by telling us who he has sent this letter with. He says, through Sivanus. Who is this one? He says, whom I consider a faithful brother. So through this man unto you, that's how the letter is going to get there. Whom Peter considers a faithful brother. He says, though I have written, there's that same word, a little bit. But he says, here's my purpose. In order to encourage and to, to testify these things, that they are true grace of God. What he has revealed for us in this first epistle is the grace that we need, not that saving grace, they've already received that, but this grace by which we stand faithfully. We live out biblical truth. We complete that full calling of our life. He says here, although I've written a little bit, I want to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God by which you stand. When difficult things happen, do you have access to that grace? Do you understand the biblical principles that are required in order to receive that grace? The grace by which we stand? Verse 13, he says, greets you the, and it's in the female, the feminine, her in Babylon, 
our fellow chosen. Now, you have to ask yourself, Babylon, that's not a good place. God's got his people all over. Even in Babylon, there's that remnant everywhere that God's going to bring out. Now, I believe that this has a, a deeper message. When we go back to Peter's introduction, he writes to those in the diaspora outside of the land. And he goes through a list of places, things such as Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and the like. All those exiles. But the greatest thought when Israel thinks about exile, two things comes into their mind. The first, Egypt. But when we talk about prophetic things, end time things, Babylon, as we see in the book of Revelation, is more prevalent. Whenever the rabbis teach this, and I agree with them, whenever exile is mentioned in the Bible, it has a purpose. Not to focus upon the exile, but rather the redemption that is coming. I think Peter, being a Jew, writing to Jews, he purposely mentioned this congregation in Babylon so that they would understand that they are to focus, to believe, expect this great redemption that is coming. He concludes by saying, and Marcos, my son, greet one another in a kiss of love. And then he says, shalom. Peace unto you all, to the ones, and don't miss this very important word, to those in Messiah Yeshua. Whenever we talk about that phrase, Peter uses it, Paul uses it extensively. In Messiah. When you hear that phrase, what should come into your mind? Covenant. In Messiah speaks about a covenantal relationship with him. And covenant, and we see that in the Torah, Whenever one enters into a covenant, they receive a calling. Did you know that? Just think about Abraham. Abraham, God says, I'm bringing you into a covenant, and I'm going to use you. Abraham never had a call on his life until he entered into a covenantal relationship with God. You never knew your call. You did not have a call. Now, God knows what it is, but... It was not made valid in force until you entered into that covenant. And that's why he reminds them. Peace to you, that means fulfill the will of God. When you say shalom, literally it's not just hello, goodbye, I'm greeting you. But it's a term of encouragement. Fulfill the will of God, all of you. To the ones in Messiah Yeshua, 
He says, Amen. A word that relates to truth. My closing comment to you. Are you going to accept, not my words, but the words of this epistle as God's truth? What you say isn't what God's looking for. It's what you do with his truth. We're not saved by our actions. But when we speak about sanctification, and this is what Peter addressed at the beginning, this is what this epistle is about. When it comes to sanctification, the doing is foundational. It is the emphasis. Sanctification is always based upon being set apart for what? A purpose, doing that purpose, fulfilling that call. And my hope is in some small way because you attended this conference that you grow more committed to the purpose of God for your life. That you leave this place more committed with greater understanding of what are God's expectations for each of us. And with a burden, not just, yes, I want to, but a burden to be someone who fulfills this. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose, holylandmarketplace.com. For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at torahclass.com. Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.